This is a Broad Pods production. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Amy Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what matters. I guess I want people to know that I I brought, you know, depth and meaning and glamour and beauty and fun into people's lives. Our guest today, actor and singer Jane Badler, was at first best known for the most iconic moment on 80s television, but we're going to come to that. Oh my gosh, that <laughs> scene is etched in my memory. <laughs> Jane has had a string of huge international TV roles from V, that gives you a little clue, mm-hmm. to Mission Impossible, to even Neighbours. She's an incredible performer and well-known philanthropist. But in 2020, one of her children, Harry Haynes, tragically died of an overdose, which of course changed Jane's world forever. And we do delve into some pretty difficult topics around mental health there, so please look after your own mental health and see our show notes for links if you need support. Jane is just a ray of light, but before we dive deep into her story, we do have to start with that iconic TV scene. Jane, thank you so much for joining us on A to B. Oh, it's so fun to be here with you two. So externally and to those around you, you know, whether it's in the public eye or in your vast networks, I guess you're many things, you know, you're a philanthropist, actor, singer, wife, mother, you know, so many things. How would you like to describe yourself? I think at this time in my life, philanthropist, maybe activist, a person who uh, can make change and inspire others. Wow, I think you've nailed your purpose right there. Yep. Mm. Is that something you've deliberately articulated for yourself or it's just come to you? I think it's just come to me, actually. (laughs) Thank you. Just now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
What particularly, when you say activist, what are your goals? I've never thought of myself as political and I think it started with Trump. And for the first time I felt very passionately about a man who shouldn't be in the White House and that kind of started me tweeting and putting and not really caring. My tweet's kind of a place where I can be very political and not care. And Instagram, I tend to be a bit more careful. But I think that, and then I think it just kept growing uh, with American politics, abortion rights, and those things started happening in America, mostly America, then, of course, the voice here, and now with the Gaza War. So it's just been kind of a continuous thing. And mainly I'm interested in humanity. And I think right now we're lacking. There's a lot of divisiveness and hate. So it's so true. So I'm just really kind of concerned about what's happening. And how has this sort of activist nature that you found in yourself, how has that snuck up on you? Was it something that was always within you, but you got on with your career, you got on with your family and now is the time? Is it something that comes with wisdom and age and experience or is it something else? That's a very good question. I I think I was so, I had so many other things taking out my brain. You know, I came from a lot of trauma growing up and, uh, and then that sort of caused me to concentrate more on just getting through anxiety every day. Then I had my career in America, which was very full on, my acting career. Then I married my husband. We had two babies very quickly Uh, One of them had a lot of issues, so that took up all of my brain power. And now I'm sort of free. You know, now now I'm at a point where I'm um, not looking after children and I can really concentrate on what's important to me. This is why I think women over 40 and over 50 and over 60 are so powerful and so important. Mm. And I think perhaps why also we're so threatening at times. Don't you think? Yes. I think we're afraid of of being threatening. I do. Oh, I do. Mm. You think we make ourselves small for that reason? People pleasers for so long. You know, and I have. Oof, boy, have I. I mean, I'm just starting now to say what I think and go, okay, well, they might not like me, but I'm going to say what I think. And that's really new for me because I come from a generation. My mother would say, oh, you're going to meet a man, a prince. He's going to make you happy. You're going to have a beautiful life with a man. You know, I'm born in the 50s, so I didn't realize, wow, wait, I can actually be happy without a man. Like that was did not occur to me. So, yeah, it's um, it's been a real growing experience. So tell us about your family then growing up and how what, what was instilled in you that you now have kept with you or that perhaps you have gone, uh-uh, that's not for me? Well, my parents married very young. They were 18 and they had their first child, I think, at 18 or 19, which, of course, nowadays seems unbelievable. They had four children. Where did you sit in the fall? I was the second oldest. And my older sister um, had a lot of issues, sadly. She was diagnosed schizophrenic. So she was like, in those days, it's just unbelievable. She was sent away, uh, like when she was young, a teenager, to some institution. So and she was four years older than I, so I didn't really get to know her that well. And uh, my mother was a very colorful, very beautiful, very brilliant woman who married and subjugated her own kind of incredible ambitions uh, to my father. He was very charismatic and she left school because she was pregnant. And then she had a eating disorder. So she was huge. Like I'm not talking like normal. You know, I grew up with an enormous mother. 
And so I was embarrassed by my mother. But she was my biggest fan. Like I was in the Miss America pageant and she made all my costumes. And she was just so, she just thought I was the the most incredible human being on the on the planet. And yet there I was as a teenager going, oh, mom, you know. But yeah, so we had my parents divorced when I was 13. My dad married a very young, beautiful woman and uh, moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, where he was um, head of the law department. Then we had a terrible tragedy in our life where my father and brother were killed in a plane crash. So I was like, I feel like I'm actually telling you like a screenplay, okay? <laughs> this is like... So I was 18. I just finished the Miss America pageant. I was a, a freshman at Northwestern University. And um, that sort of like completely changed my life. You know, I think it was just all about, I was such a warrior. Oh, I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to cry. I'm going to be okay. Can you imagine? I'm not going to cry. Mm. And so I just thought, I'm just going to be like the best. I'm going to be super successful. I'm going to be super famous. and That's going to get me through. And that was kind of what I did for a while. Went to New York and got on soap operas and commercials and all this stuff. But some of your guests have said, if you do not deal with the trauma, then eventually it's going to, you know, really affect your mental health. And how did that, when did that happen? Well, I, I kind was of was a, a big part. I was doing everything. I was like, you know, wild and men and this and that and partying. And then I'd get up at five and do the soap opera all day. And then I mean, I was just like a crazy person. And then went into therapy, but I was always um, having anxiety attacks, like terrible anxiety attacks. And I don't think I dealt with it at all, really. I sort of didn't deal with it. I just, and then I got Mission Impossible, met my husband, who I thought, now he's going to save me. Like, it was always like someone was going to save me. And um, so I moved here, just walked away from this incredible career and had two babies very quickly. (laughs) And that's like a whole other, that's like a whole other thing, you know, but... Wow. Before we revisit some of the myriad of things that you've just shared with us, can we talk about your incredible career? Because I was just such a huge fan, like probably everybody else. Thank you. And particularly of your role in V. Yes. To be honest, like I, you know, that moment where you eat the rat. Yes. It is still so clear in my memory. I don't know why as a teenager that that particular scene really (laughs) stuck with me. But you know what I think? I think it was this like, you know, like he cast me as this kind of incredibly young, beautiful woman. Nobody knew what I was. And then it was kind of very sexual too. You know, like there I was, this, you know, gorgeous young woman. And suddenly out of nowhere, I pick up a, a, it was a guinea pig, like a big fat guinea pig and eat it. Like, of course, (laughs) everyone's going to be going... Oh my God. And what about the special effects? It's just effects? an iconic moment. Isn't I know. It? No, it's just, it's iconic. And we just had a big thing in Vanity Fair. Like they just did a big article on it. So it's just like incredible, the staying power that it's had, V. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I can't even believe it like that. I've been part of something like that. You know, I never again, like it was that one moment, like I've done a lot of things since then, but never V. Does it annoy you that people maybe know you for that, but not the other amazing work that you've done? I'm not, I'm okay with it, really. I'm so so grateful. God, it's given me the most amazing opportunities. But you are, you've, you've got a movie out at the moment, haven't you? Yes. I have a, a, a movie that is hopefully about to come out called Trim Season that I produced and I star in and we shot it in Utah. It's, uh, it really cured me of not really needing to act anymore. <laughs> to curse then. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like it was my thing that I needed to do. You needed to get it out I of I needed to do this role. It was a dark dark role 
very dark role. And I did it. And I'm so proud of myself. And now I feel like it's on to producing and... Oh, you're done with acting now. I'm not to say that I will never act, but I'm not chasing that at all anymore. That is not my passion. What was it in you that chased it then? And yeah, what drew you to a dark role and to produce and act in a dark role when you seem so, to me, so full of light? I think I have a lot of demons and I think it was a way of working through. An exorcism. Yeah, Yeah, because it's a horror film and I play the worst possible kind of person. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I play a witch with superpowers and I do unspeakable things. So, well, I liked the witch with superpowers bit. I think yeah, that <laughs> part's promising. great. But then I do horrible things in order to feed my addiction. I'm addicted to this particular weed that keeps me young. And so I do things. Oh, I'm getting tinctures of Rapunzel. Ooh, yes. It's a very, it's very interesting film. So um, I kind of went through that process and when it was over, it was really exhausting and I watch it now and I go, okay, that was great, but I feel like 40 years I've been acting, do you know? Mm. That's a long time. But it's interesting to me, I, I always feel like people who are drawn to performance, and I don't really include myself in that, although I've been a performer for 25 years, but people who are drawn to the need to be an actor and can't ever give it up because it's in them, I wonder what it is that is that almost a curse because it is not an easy life. Oh. I mean, you're always out of work, you're struggling, you're hustling the whole time, you know, and there's sort of, I guess, a cliche that maybe you're seeking validation or escape or whatever it is. But what what was it for you? I This is a really kind of interesting thing to admit. I'm probably admitting this for the very first time. But I think the reason I acted may not have been for the right reasons. You know, I think I acted at the beginning for attention, for accolades, for fame. Um, And then I, you know, I always studied my craft. I was a theater major at Northwestern. I studied with Stella Adler, with some of the greatest acting teachers. But ultimately, I always found acting so difficult for me. Some people just do it so easily. And maybe they don't. But it was, it's a lot of work. It's Mm. a lot of work. And I'm now at a point where I want my attention to go somewhere else. And that's really what it is. And when you say that you're doing it for what you now regard as the wrong reasons, and those reasons sound like they were sort of ego-led, but you were also trying to escape the great grief of losing your father and your brother. So do you have, you know, with maturity now, do you have an element of real insight and forgiveness for that younger version of yourself. Yes, totally. I think we all have to do that. You know, look at that younger version, see the crazy things we've done. And like, we are the ones that have to say to our younger self, God, I love you. Like, you know, we keep looking for our partners or for someone else to say it. But I think it's really up to us to say it. Yeah. I think grief makes you do weird things. It sure does. Yeah. So we have a very strange connection in that my father died in a plane crash. Oh, my God, I just got chills. Sorry. Do you believe that? Well, I literally got chills. It's not often you meet other people. Oh, <laughs> that I got I'm emotional. That's amazing. How old were you? I was four, so quite a oh different experience. God. Like a commercial plane or? Uh, he was a pilot. So Same with my yeah. dad. He was a pilot. Yeah. That is fascinating. I mean, a very different experience because you were an adult and I was a child, so I guess. Well, it's still know. trauma. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a plane crash is a particular kind yes. of. Yes. I don't know. I mean, I I don't love flying. Me neither. But I think also it's the way 
the world, and I guess car accidents are the same, that you can have a person there one moment yes, and then suddenly not. Yeah. And so you're taught for the rest of your life that that can happen to anyone. Totally. You have a very different relationship to death. I feel like I do too. I'm very aware. It's with me every minute. Yeah, me too. I'm very aware that I'm living, but that I could not be living. <laughs> now that sounds very macabre, but that's the truth. No, but does that make you more grateful or more fearful? I mean, grateful I that you I think I'm very are. grateful yeah. and I enjoy, I really enjoy my coffee and I really enjoy the flowers I see in the park. And I really, I mean, there's like that two sides to it, isn't there? There's like that, the pain of it. And then there's kind of the scintillating beauty you see in life. What about you, Joe? Does it make you more grateful or fearful? I mean, um, you say you don't love I mean, I'm an, an intensely risk-averse person and, and it's quite, it's a running gag in our family in that I don't like heights, I don't do rides, I don't go in the water, I don't go underground, exactly the I don't same. like speed. <laughs> <laughs> and my family goes, you just don't like fun. And I'm like, well, no, you're right. I'm exactly, exactly the same. My husband's driving two kilometres over the speed. Like, Honey, slow down, slow down. You know, it's like, he goes, what's with you? I'm like this. <laughs> like, no, I am exactly the same. The same. I don't understand people who like adrenaline for fun. I'm like, that is not fun. That is that makes me want to be like I want to just crawl into a dark hole. And, and yet we're performers. Out. Well, that's because right. that's safe. It's emotional. It's not like my physical being will be hurt. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. not funny. Wow, how amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, we are talking about grief, so we have to speak about your beautiful boy Harry. Is it okay for you to yeah, speak about yeah, him? Just if I get emotional, don't you know? Yeah, it's been four years. And well, almost four years. And um, only four years. Of course, you're going to get emotional. I know. Even if it was and I remember, years. like, I did a grief group like a year after he died, and there were people in the grief group, mothers. It was a parent one, and that tw- had been twenty years, and they were talking about their intense pain. I felt like going, "Well, excuse me, don't. What are you talking about? It's been a year for me, and I want to get inspired by you. I want you to make me feel okay." And now it's been four years and there's just no change. It's like it's like it happened yesterday. Like time is not the same when you lose a child. It's not the same. I mean, it is the greatest pain. I know. And he was, God, he was something. Tell us about Harry. Harry was just like not, I mean, people call him an earth angel because he was just not meant to be here long. He just came here to teach. He was from a young age, so unique. He was always one foot in this world, one foot somewhere else. He was completely into magic. He had books of potent, like, spells that he could fly, that he could be a super person. He had, you know, kind of made up lands, Harry Land. And he was just this magical person, but he also had a very profound sleeping disorder. And so at a very young age, he went onto the web and he got sleeping pills. So that was kind of, we didn't know about that, but he was a very difficult child. Like, like, oh my God, if I wish I could remember a lot of time of happiness with him, but he really kept me on my toes. But he was really special. I mean, he was beautiful to look at. He was a, with Ford. He was incredibly talented. He could play piano and recite Latin and he was just incredible. And um, yeah, he just got, you know, one thing led to another and his friends all, said that he was, they were afraid for him because he was such a risk taker. He really didn't care. He actually did not care what people thought. He dressed in women's clothes at a young age. I mean, that's kind of like no one was doing that. So, um, yeah, and then he went off to L.A. at 21 
uh, and he had a lot of success, but then he kind of went back and forth. He was in and out of rehabs. Oh, my God. Rehabs and the last seven years of his life were just basically me trying to save him. I mean, that was where all my energy went, trying to save him. You know, I could write, well, I am. I am trying to write a book about this, which is uh, not easy. Yeah. Do you feel that, I mean, sometimes in life I've heard that the, and I don't mean to say this flippantly because you've lost your son, but that some lessons in life keep coming back until we learn them. Was there Mm -hmm. something that you learned throughout that time with your son trying to save him and support him that impacted you profoundly? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I went to a lot of Al-Anon meetings and the whole thing about Al-Anon is when you have an addict that you love, you are taught to, you know, let go because you're never going to save them. Basically, the only person that's going to save them is their self. But I think this is just absolutely impossible as a mother. Oh, you can't. You just can't. I mean, I try. Because that's like giving up on them. It's like giving up. Like I never, I never could just let him go. Never, never, never. And I think the lessons that I've learned, I mean, I would not have done anything differently, even though during that period my health drastically went down. It was not good for my marriage. My other son was probably not uh, paid attention to a lot. But the truth is I would not give up for a second that I spent all my energy trying to save him. I mean, that's just what I did. Well, you would not want to be sitting here thinking there was something I didn't do. Yep. And somehow I survived. Like I'm sitting here surviving and in, in a beautiful place in my marriage now and having so much joy in my life alongside a lot of grief. But I just feel grateful that I am a survivor. There's a reason you are. You know, there's, there's a part of your story that is valuable for others. Totally. Which is why I'm trying to write this bloody book. Well, I mean, yeah, like the, the, a mother's grief is something really specific mm. but very common. It is very common. Too common. Do you know? Yeah, but I think I just feel like in life if we're lucky we have choices. You know, some people don't have choices but we do have choices and that is to decide how you are going to spend each day. And I guess you can give in and I'm used to being a warrior, aren't I? Because I've always had to be. And sometimes you do give in to the grief, but ultimately you have to decide you're going to live your life for the people that love you, for my other son, for my husband, for myself, you know, so. And I feel like this part of my life, I'm doing more interesting things than I've ever done too. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
how do you approach your own healing, you know, from not only many years ago losing father, brother, um, difficult relationship with your mother, but obviously losing a son is the biggest thing and most recent thing of all. We did see on your Instagram that you went on a retreat recently. Can you tell us about that? Oh, my God. With Deepak Chopra. Yes. Which is the last one that he's going to do. He is amazing. He's just so amazing. Um, You know, I think it's really hard for me to give up my attachments. You know, I try. My attachments to my phone, my attachment to my husband, my attachment to my – I love – looking online to shop. That's my, that's my addiction, you know, well, what's, you know. So I think for me to go somewhere and then have to give that up, like what would happen, what happened? So it was a silent retreat for how long? Six days. Wow. Yep. And, you know, not, none of those things that I normally get, you know, are not there. Well, the crutches, like yeah. things you turn to when you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you can either sit idle with your thoughts or you can pick up a phone. Yes. We pick up a phone. Or I can look on the shopping channel yeah. or I can do this yeah. or that. Well, I did a silent retreat for six days myself, but I loved it. But everybody struggled with that. And not saying that I yeah, was yeah. in any way superior or inferior about letting go, but I just think it was the right time for me. So what did you learn about yourself? I think I was already ready to go inward because I'd been doing that a lot. I'd written my book already. So in that writing that you're doing, that's obviously part of your catharsis and your healing experience. So tell us a little bit more about what it was like to just have to go inward and be silent with yourself. For me, this one, it was not as bad as the first one I did, which was a little more, um, this one was a little more luxurious. We had a beautiful hotel room and you know, it was, it was, we only had to meditate maybe a couple hours a day, whereas the last one I did was like, woof. I was like, you know, basically six or seven hours a day you're sitting down kind of meditating or I think still I realized that I go pretty dark. I kind of go, just kind of explore the depths of my despair, which maybe is something I, part of me, I don't know. I don't think I enjoy it. It just sort of happens. And then I go down this rabbit hole of obsessive thinking you know, and I thought, oh my God, am I going crazy? I actually even had to call my therapist. I broke the silence one night because I texted my therapist and I said, I need to talk to you. And so we had one therapy session. She said, no, that's okay to do this. But then the strange thing is when I left, I was so peaceful. That was the thing. Really, really peaceful. Well, I mean, you're moving, yeah. moving it through your body, I suppose. Yeah. Did it feel like you had released... Yes, it did. It really did. And I'm just from a personal point of view, I'm just so curious, what did Deepak bring? I know, because I the, love We him. want to know. <laughs> was he giving Dharma talks every night? Yes, Is that he was how giving he two talks a day. Can you explain for people who don't know even who Deepak Chopra is? He's kind is? of like a scientific spiritual guru. I mean, he comes from a very strong science background, but he's also deeply spiritual. And putting those two together is what makes him kind of different, I think. He's the real deal. I mean, it's very easy to be a little bit cynical. He's written a lot of books, like I don't know how many books, probably 30 more. And he's uh, commercialized his brand. And so I went into it with a little skepticism, thinking, "Mm, might be not my thing, but he is the real thing. And most of his commercialization comes from so much wanting to change the world for the better. How would you describe your spirituality? I think 
for me, there is a strong awareness that there is much more than what we see with our five senses. And maybe I need to know that in order to think that these things happen to us, these horrible things happen to us, but that this is just one perception and that there's, you know, much, much more than what we can perceive. And so I think that's kind of the basis of my spirituality. Have you had spiritual experiences that sort of back up that feeling about our perception? Well, I have seen quite a few mediums and I can say that one in particular, I still find it very difficult to understand how she was able to say the things she said to me because she didn't know who I was. We conversed on WhatsApp and she just had my first name and I'd forgotten about her because you have to do it months in advance. And then the day of our reading, I noticed someone on WhatsApp kept calling me and finally I picked up and I go, who is it? She goes, oh my God, Jane, I, I have to talk to you because I'm the medium, but there's a young man that is trying to get to you. And, and I went, what? Like she didn't know anything about me. And she just knew, like, she just knew so much. Just stuff that nobody else could know. No one could know. Like, no one. And at the time, I was doing a legacy project for him. Like, I I had to do it. Like, a year where I spent sort of putting his music out there. He's a very talented musician. His brother did the animation for the videos. We hired a... Oh, my God, have I told you what we did? We were crazy with grief. We hired this team in America who was charging us so much money you know, saying, oh, because Harry called himself anti-boy, which was his kind of way of saying, you know, screw gender, we're above that, I'm the anti-boy. He's got an incredible Instagram page. I know, incredible. So that was kind of what we decided we were going to get out there, this messaging that you should accept yourself and anti-boy and we put out his music and and then we had, you know, people want to do the boy band, the anti-boy boy band. And we had these meetings with these people, big people. Oh, it'll only cost $100 million and we can get the boy band. We can get the boy band. Finally, I said, I looked at my eyes and go, wow, this is like madness. This is madness. Like, it was almost like my husband would watch me kind of pouring myself into this project, which I think I just had to do at the time. But then we realized this is just like, not going to bring him back. So we stepped, at that point, we just said, thank you, but, and we stepped away. And that was sort of the end of the anti-boy legacy project. Did you feel yeah. a bit like it was an out-of-body experience at the time? Like you were just not in control? Yes. It was out of body. And I thought, oh, I'm pretty good at this grieving thing, you know? Like like my son was gone and yet I was so coping. I look back, I go, you were mad as a hatter. Oh my God, you just you just did what you always do. You go, I'm going to make this anti-boy thing the world. And I'm going to, you know what I'm Isn't that so true that what we do to avoid sitting with the grief is action? Got to do, 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 yeah. do instead of mm, Keeping busy. Mm. Keeping busy. So now that pouring in of what you felt at the time was purpose, you are much more mindful of that. Now you've got a little bit of time and a little bit of distance from that, but you do pour yourself into a lot of causes, don't you? Can you tell us about those? Well, I'm a patron of Lighthouse, which you you both know of, which is homeless youth. So I'm pretty involved with that. And uh, we also are very supportive of the Gender House uh, with the um, Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, which I'm also a big supporter of. 
And yeah, we I've started to get involved with uh, documentaries with social impact, which is really important to me as well. And now I'm starting to produce. I'm, I'm a creative producer on a, I'm just about to sign a contract on a new project, um, very young filmmakers. And um, that's like super exciting for me to be part of the process, you know, the writing, the editing, the casting. So that's kind of this new uh, phase that I want to move into now, which is helping get projects going. And how does that feel to just be able to be of service in a profound way to so many people in different areas with just you, like what you have? Like obviously you put money into it, but you're putting your love, life and soul into things. It feels so good. It feels so good to be free. Well, free that I'm, you know, not spending all my time talking to case managers and sober companions and and then free uh, to not be chasing acting. You know, that, that took up a lot of time and energy. And you have to keep your muscles and you have to do acting classes and then you get a job and then you were consumed with that. That's like a whole thing that I've just said, that goes there. And now I've got all this energy to actually make make a difference. What What is your, I mean, what do you want your legacy to be? That's such an interesting question. I don't know. I guess I want people to know that I, I brought, you know, depth and meaning and glamour and beauty and fun into people's lives. Although what you're working on, all those incredible organisations yeah. that you're supporting, they're kind of not about that, are they? They're about freedom and yes, they are. helping others to live their beauty, I suppose. You know, you're bringing liberation to those people. Right? Yes. And glamour. Yes, and <laughs> glamour. But, you know, I think, you know, what's happened in the world is, and I think it started with the whole woke movement, which um, was needed, you know, at the time, um, because a lot of the people that were coming from that were discriminated against and still are. But like most things, I feel they go a little too far. And then something else occurs after that. And I think it's also affecting the way people are thinking with the Gaza war as well. So it's just such an interesting time. And I really want people to feel measured and look at both sides. To Yes, you can read things from the Palestinian sites, but also read live on ground what's happening in Israel. You know, listen to Sam Harris, who's one of the very sane voices in all this. I just think it's really important that people are are not jumping to what they see on Instagram or Twitter or, you know. But that's, um, yeah, I just hope my legacy is that I made a difference in people's lives for the better. And, it, you know, for the individual who may have gone through, you know, that unimaginable grief that you have gone through, have you got, I mean, what can you tell that person who might be seeking advice when you are seeking inspiration in that grief group? You know, I read a lot of books on grief after it happened. I, le- I read a lot of books about parents who lost children to help me. Like, how did they survive? How did they get through it? And I think the biggest thing is to make friends with grief. Like, don't say, I'm pushing you away. Say, yes, here you are. And that's because I loved so deeply. I get so emotional thinking about that, but that's what grief is. I think we fear grief, don't we, as a society? And and you're so right that we it's one of the most common, it is the most common experience on the planet. It sure is. 
and and it's to be alive is and to grieve. And we do try to push it away and we do try to compartmentalise yeah. it. Because we're so embarrassed and especially in Australia, I mean, I'm not saying it. We're so intertwined with English shame. Here. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, the whole idea of showing emotion is like people, oh, no, I can't cry. You know, it's like very, very kind of ingrained in, in our society. Mm. So... I think it needs to be talked about. Also, I felt this recently. Uh, it was a strange time. I live in Elstonwick and so the war had started in Gaza and Cal Wilson had died same day or same week. Right. And I was in the supermarket and, you know, there's such a large Jewish community in Elstonwick and people were openly weeping in the oh supermarket. <laughs> And I found myself openly weeping because oh Cal Wilson God. had died. And it felt very incredibly raw and vulnerable but also so right. Oh, my God. I thought if you're not going to gather where you are with your community and weep, what else is there? What an amazing, amazing thing to happen. We fear tears and we fear being raw and going, I'm hurting so much yeah. that it's spilling out of me right now. And that is the most human thing you can do. Totally. Absolutely. There's also an element of there's only so much grief that one person can handle. Yes. So there's this self-protectionism yes. that takes place too and you can understand sides, the necessity for vulnerability and that outpouring but also to be able to create some sort of shield around your heart. And so how do you get that balance? That's so true. And you sometimes think you're going mad, you know, with grief because grief is so painful. Am I going to go crazy here? But then you kind of don't. I mean, my car is the best, you know. I've spent many a time in my car being very loud, <laughs> very loud, you know, banging and screaming and crying. And, you know, and then I go, am I going mad? Am I actually mad? And then it like passes. But Because you've got to shift it through your body. Uh, you, well, you do. It doesn't stay, thank God, you know. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I, I think for me what was very, very difficult was after Harry passed away and I would see people avoiding me. That was like really quite incredible. Or people not being able to look at me. And even now I'll say to someone, I'm really happy to talk about Harry. Let's talk about Harry because the more I talk about Harry, then he's like alive. He's here with us. He's not forgotten. And I think because I'm comfortable with it, people have become more comfortable with me. They say, oh, you make it so easy. You know, thank you. But it's hard. Isn't it so interesting in society that the onus is put on you, on the person exactly. grieving, on to actually yes. allow for the emotional experience and it is, of others. I feel like it is on me in a way to kind of allow people to, it's okay. You can grieve with me. It's okay. I have to allow them to know that I'm not going to fall apart. It's like an apology too. I'm so yeah. sorry that, you know, I've made you feel uncomfortable yeah. about the fact that yeah, I'm that grieving. <laughs> Yeah, it is. But it is such a critical conversation and I think that um, other cultures do it better, I'm sure. I don't know. I'm not a, from another culture but certainly in Australia we don't they do it. They do it a lot better and I don't know if there's any grief groups here. I mean I, there was one that I did join that I wasn't too happy with and then I know online there's David Kessler who's one of the most famous grief counsellors in the world and he has all of this help online, Tender Hearts it's called, where parents, because he lost a son, where parents can get online with other like-minded people. And I think those kind of things are really helpful. Mm. So who are you now? How would you describe the impact of those 
you know, like a lifetime of extraordinary experiences. I think it's made me more aware of my mortality. It's made me more passionate about wanting to help others and help make some social changes. And it's made me, in a weird way, more in my body, more of a woman than I feel I've ever been, more of a feminist, more looking for women to be empowered, uh, which I can see now that I've had a lifetime of Me Too moments that were very destructive. But at the time, I just accepted it. And now at my age, when I don't have the Me Too moments, which thank you, I feel like it has to be spoken about. Do you mean like men harassing you? Yes, and, yeah. or, and people in powerful positions. The misogyny of the industry that you're oh, in. Oh, like unbelievable. You're of a generation where you weren't given permission to say anything. Exactly. You were not given permission. It was tolerated all the time. And I mean, I had endless things happen to me. I mean, I was never, thank God, assaulted. I always was very clever and managed to kind of say, oh, well, I've just got to go get something or, you know, and somehow I managed to always weasel my way out of things. But but like sliding door moments, any other oh, yeah. sort of like sliding door moments by a minuscule yep. hairs. And I was very kind of like, you know, like the head of my acting department, you know, when I went to Northwestern, which is a very famous acting school. I was with one of the, I shouldn't even talk about this, but one of the great teachers. We had mime every morning. It was like, oh, feeding my soul. And then one day he called me into his office and he made it pretty clear that he'd like to have a relationship with me. I was like 18. And I remember telling him no, you know, in a sweet way. And the next day I was kicked out of the class mm -hmm. and I had a lesser teacher. And that affected my whole four years at Northwestern. You know, it was like the whole time I was feeling shamed and embarrassed and how do I kind of you know, kind of somehow make the most of this experience. and But how proud of yourself must you be that you actually said no because yes. many other people in that situation would have frozen yeah. or would have acquiesced, but you said no. But throughout that four years, and this is what we do as women, is we blame ourselves and we mm. create a scenario in which I, you know, I've now, I have got the shame of that even though the shame is his. That's right. But we feel the shame. I mean, we know that about victims. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's like a good time for me because I know now, you know, who I am. Mm. And you've got time to reflect now. Yes. More than you did when you were busy doing, doing, doing. And so what is it now to be? Hey, and I'm going to be a grandparent. Oh! <laughs> I think this is the first time I've said it on air. I know, I'm so emotional. <laughs> it's a little boy. So I'm just like, I can't believe it. My son, Sam, yeah, he's just come back from New York uh, with his wife. They're very talented. They're creatives. And um, yeah, he just got a job actually one a teaching at RMIT in, in the uh, kind of design, AI design. But yeah, it's just amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm going to be, that's going to be. That could be your B. Be a grandparent. Give me the baby whenever you want. <laughs> I'm taking that baby. <laughs> so yeah, what does it mean for you to be? I think just to accept, accept my journey, accept who I am with all my complexities, accept my pain and yeah, just accept that I'm a very lucky, lucky person living in this country and to have the privileges that I have. I guess that's what I to be is. We feel so very lucky to have had you Aww. sit with us today. 
guys are amazing. Oh, you are. You it's are. just been a delight. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We love you joining us for our A to B chats. Yes, we do. Please see our show notes for our acknowledgement of country and all the people who help us put this podcast together, as well as interesting links to our guests' work and other references we've mentioned. We're Joe and Mimi from A to B. Rate, follow and get in touch on our website. And let us know whose A to B you'd like to find out about. We can't wait for you to hear our next conversation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.